Hello and uh, welcome to Philosophy. I'm Will Anderson. Uh, this is the intro at the start of the podcast. I've just been sitting here out the back of my house this morning. It is uh, the Wednesday morning when I'm going to put this up, hopefully. Um, you know, touch wood. Here we go. Touch wood. I don't really believe in traditions like that, but I touch wood regardless. Because when it comes to Australia's internet, you have to do whatever you can do to actually guarantee that it might work. Uh People might not know we have some of the slowest upload speeds in the entire world, which uh, means that it takes me more time to upload the podcast than it takes me to record, edit, and put together the podcast. So that's always an absolute delight. But uh, I've been sitting here this morning out in my office, and it's been actually really beautiful because it's a rainy Sydney morning, and it's one of those kind of beautiful rainy mornings where you don't really want to get out of bed. But uh, uh, I came out to the office, and I've been watching the final episode of Clever Man, um, a brilliant show that I really loved on the ABC, and... uh, I uh, had been traveling and hadn't got to catch up with the final episode, so I've been watching that this morning, uh, particularly because I'm going to be talking uh, to the creator of Clever Man on the next episode of Willosophy. Not this one, though. Uh, We're going to record that uh, tonight. So uh, it means, for once, uh, you know, they are going to be coming out a little regularly, so perhaps every two weeks for the next uh, little while, I'm going to try to get out episodes of the podcast. So thank you very much for your patience. I know that... uh, People get frustrated when this one doesn't come out that often. Uh, I do have other regular podcasts, uh, Tofop, Fofop, and an AFL podcast, Two Guys, One Cup. So they're all more regular than this one. Um, So if you want to hear me rabbit on about other things, you can do that there. But I am going to endeavor, uh, do my best to get an episode of Philosophy out every couple of weeks, at least uh, while I'm back in Australia doing Gruen and have the um, access to some people that I can talk to. So uh, that's what's happened with today's guest. Uh, So yeah, I'll set the scene. I'm out the back in my office. It's a rainy Sydney day. You might even be able to hear the rain in the background. I don't know if you got any of that. Maybe if I turn up, hang on, let's see if I can turn this up. We'll get a little bit of Atmos here at the start of the uh, podcast. See if you can hear the rain in there outside. That's, oh, now, now I was, I was way too loud. I can't do both at the same time. Oh, actually, you know what? I could do both at the same time. What if I hang on? All right. I'm going to pause this. Let's see. I've never, anyway, you probably don't give a shit about this, but I'm doing it now anyway. All right. Hang on. I'm pausing. There we go. I've set up the other microphone. So now that should mean that this one, I can turn back to that. There we go. And we should have a little bit of the uh, Atmos in the background. Uh, How's that? Is that too much? Oh, 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 hang on. Now I'm being a bit tinny. There we go. Okay, there we go. All right. Well, this is an overly complicated introduction, but maybe there we go. We've got this little bit of rain in the background. Sorry if anyone needed to go to the bathroom. Probably a bad time to start a podcast. To be honest, if you need to go to the toilet, and if you are uh, using this podcast to, I guess, uh, accompany your toilet visits, stop it. I mean, I can't do anything to make you stop that, but please don't do that. That's not what it's for. Um, it's not meant to be a, a laxative, a replacement for Metamucil or any of those sort of things. By the way, not sponsored by Metamucil. Today's episode is actually brought to you by today's sponsor. No, I don't really have a sponsor, but uh, Jane Caro is my guest on today's uh, podcast, and I love Jane Caro, and uh, she was very nice to invite me over to her house, her beautiful husband of 40 years, and made us some uh, delightful tea, and we drank some tea, and we had uh, this uh, brilliant conversation. I love talking to Jane. I could have talked to her for another four hours we barely got to any of the things i wanted to talk about but all the things she was talking about were so fascinating we just talked about them uh also at the end uh i was gifted because they are delightful people a bottle of wine byron and harold the partners it was a shiraz the 2013 great southern 
Shiraz, and uh, it was delicious. Oh, look at that. Bottle number 2104 of uh, 4,520. I don't really know what that means, but I rarely get uh, wines that have a bottle number on them, so I'm impressed by it. So there you go. That was their wine that they uh, gave me, and I thought was delicious. I'm not being paid for that plug, although I did drink the wine. So you know what? You can uh, make up your own mind about how biased or not biased I am. There you go. That's a pretty good plug. Ringing endorsement. That's why I work for the ABC. I'd be no good in the commercial media. Uh, Speaking of plugs, uh, I have a Patreon page, patreon.com slash TOEFOP, T-O-F-O-P. You can sign up there to support any of the podcasts we do in the TOEFOP universe, and it just gives us... uh, you know, a little bit of financial support to help, uh, you know, with the editing costs, uploads, uh, you know, hosting fees, all those sort of things uh, that cost you to do an imaginary radio show. So uh, thank you very much. Uh, thanks for listening. If you like the podcast and you want to help out, uh, you can go to the Patreon page. Or um, the other thing you can do if you have no money or you don't want to contribute money, but you like the podcast, pass it around. Tell people about it. Rate it on iTunes. Do all those sort of things. They make a big difference when you're a a tiny little show with no budget to promote it or uh, publicize it or anything like that. So we're up against some big uh, media behemoths. So if you like the show, pass it around to your friends and tell people about it. Um, All right. Uh, I'm not going to say too much more. Uh, I really um, have overly complicated this introduction. So I hope you enjoy the show and uh, I'll talk to you again soon. Oh, I should mention Gruen, I suppose. Gruen's back uh, if you're in Australia and you're listening to this. uh, August 3 is our first episode. So, um, uh, you know, tune in for that. That'll be really good. So, all right. uh, Talk to you. See ya. Tech. Hello and welcome to Willosophy with Will Anderson. I am Will Anderson from the title of the podcast. And as is usual, I didn't actually warn our guest about this today, but she's going to be fine with it. I'm very confident. I will ask you two questions at the start of this uh, at the start of this podcast, guest, and then we will just enjoy ourselves. The first one is very simple, and you should know the answer to, but I'd like to hear it regardless. Who are you? Well, my name is Jane Caro, uh, and I am a sort of wearer of many hats. I do a whole lot of different things. I speak, I write, I write novels, I write nonfiction columns, um, and I appear in the media every now and again, and I guess you could just say I'm a mouthy broad, really. You are a mouthy broad, mm. and that is what I like about you, and I like the general description of mouthy broad. So let's <laughs> get to the second bit, and then we can get on with yeah. the rest of it, which is, do you have a philosophy? This is I ask people on this podcast, and it can be to do with anything, and often we find that people have many more than one and they're much more complex than where we start. But I just do like to ask, do you, do you have a, like a guiding principle or a philosophy or something through which, a prism through which that you kind of live your life? Yeah, I think I do. And it is to, to, to be as truthful as I can. So, you know, if someone asks me a question, I always try to answer it as straightforwardly as I know how. And I mean, to me, that is possibly the most fucking brave thing of all, because I think we live in a world where so many people are unafraid to express their opinions. But the, the problem, I think, at the heart of it is so often I don't think they're actually expressing their opinions. I think a lot of the time what we do is repeat opinions that we hear that kind of... Okay, so anyway, let's not have me talk about that. Let's have you talk about that. (laughs) Well, I agree with you completely. There's an awful lot of spouting the company line. Uh, And there's an awful lot of worry about 
you know, is this right what I'm saying? I don't actually mind if I'm wrong. Mm-hmm. I just want to say what I think. And if, you know, if someone turns around and say, well, you know, I think you're wrong for these reasons, good, I've learned something. But I won't learn anything if I'm just spouting somebody else's opinion because I don't hold it anyway. Okay, so the first thing that I'm interested in there is uh, not being right because mm. I think so often uh, people are afraid to be wrong and this is why we don't move forward is that people are afraid that if they speak – they will say something wrong. Or I I would even go a step further. I often feel that the reason that people get tied to opinions they don't have anymore is because in the past they had held that opinion and now they just feel like they can't move forward. Oh, absolutely. And it seems to be one of the greatest criticisms of our time, particularly for political figures. If they, for example, go on a journey on a subject, then they're, oh, but you don't really think that because in 1994 you said blah, blah. What the? I mean, I would, A, wouldn't know what I said in 1994 and also I probably said a whole lot of absolute shit in 1994 and I've moved on. Right. In 1994, we probably agreed that the Backstreet Boys were back. Yeah. But they weren't. No, they weren't. It was just a moment. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I, I think to be, you know, I really like that quote and I'm going to misquote it horribly here, Good. but it's the one that says, you know, when the evidence uh, points out that something's wrong, I change my mind. What do you do? And I think that the ability to say, oh, actually, I never thought of it that way, that makes more sense to me and, and move forward is really important and missing. Okay. So the thing that I'm interested in first and foremost is then how do you decide what you think? Because <laughs> if you're a person who is a paid to have opinions on things, then you can't just wake up in the morning – well, I – to be honest, I hear a lot of talk about radio and it does sometimes feel like they wake up in the morning and just decide what their opinion's going to be. But uh, yeah. but I don't feel like that's where your opinions come from. I feel like there's a process and a thought behind them. So can you explain yeah. to me what some of that is? I try, to, oh, I try to think, well, what would motivate someone to feel that way or say that thing? What's going on in them that would make that be their point of view, even though it might be objectionable or angry or, you know, all, all sorts of things, or stupid even. What's going on in them? What are they reacting to? I'm interested in the beneath, like what's going on beneath. And so I think a lot about that. And I also, I don't want to do the knee-jerk reaction. You know, so often you get asked if you like me and you get asked for your opinions a lot, they want you to be outraged a lot. You know, they want you to have the Right. Doctrinaire opinion. A certain opinion. Yeah. And I don't want to do that. It's the criticism that is so often levelled at, um, thank you very much. Uh, We have just been delivered tea. (laughs) Tea. Very well made tea. I've got a separate pot for (laughs) milk here as well. I mean, it's very considerate. I like this. No, no, this is good. This is perfect. I feel very good about this. this is the state of the media at the moment, isn't it? Mm. We live in this world now where, and you would see it all the time, uh, you know, a good example of it, the week we're recording this was the week that Steve Price and uh, oh, yeah. Van Batten yeah, had uh, their altercation on Q&A. And there's a part of me that thinks, but yes, but that's all that was ever going to happen when Q&A decided to get those two people on that show and sit them next to each other. In fact, that's the exact thing they wanted to happen because you've got two people and, you know, on very different sides of politics who, regardless of the conversation, are never going to change their mind on the side that they're on. To me, that's not an effective debate because that's just two people yelling at each other. That isn't two people looking at their differences and trying to find a consensus and a way forward. Now, you operate a lot in that world. Is that something that you see more and more? Uh, I see it and I always try to resist it if I possibly can. Yeah. In fact, my first thought when I saw that 
desk of people on Monday night was, oh, poor Van sitting between George Brandis and Steve Price. Because, I mean, yes. <laughs> yeah, because I just went, oh, my God, no, not I'm envious. Yeah, I'd she, be terrified. She be- is the Vegemite in that white bread sandwich. Correct. <laughs> and she, they're going to go her. Yep. She, and Van is someone who I really think is fantastic and unbelievably brave. And she has she has not got an ounce of deference in her. Like mm. she does not defer. Right. And I think that for men of a certain generation and a certain class, they don't even know they expect young women to defer to them, but they do. Uh-huh. And when they don't, they get inflamed. There's something about the refusal of the young woman to defer that gets so far up their nose so fast. And I think that's what we saw happening on that on that set. And I think you're right. They wanted some fireworks. Why? And I mean, Darren Hinch turned out to be the good guy. Now, you know you've got some really opinionated blokes there when Darren Hinch looks like a kind of moderate voice of reason. Um, and it was, it was a I found it quite an exciting show to watch. I have to say, I think that the producers just for the record, though, Jane, uh, Darren Darren Hinch uh, is anti-pedophile. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, he was the only it person who everyone. ran as an anti-pedophile character. So I assume all the others are pro-pedophile because well. they didn't say it. One guy is anti-pedophile, so that's why In he got the, whole the votes. World. Yeah. It's interesting, Darren. Darren really actually fascinates me because I've heard Darren on a range of issues where I would consider him to be a reasonably like almost a left-wing person. Yes. But there's a couple of hot button issues where he goes the complete opposite way. And I actually find those characters more interesting. Like a Darren Hinch where you go, okay, we've got some common ground, some things we can definitely agree on. I agree then we can work on some of the things that we don't agree on. Yeah. And that's – but whereas like a Steve Price, these days Steve Price, not the old Steve Price because – Anyone who remembers the old Steve Price remembers that Steve Price used to be more like a Neil Mitchell right wing, not that outrageous right wing shock jock Andrew Bolt you know, thing that he is now. Mm. He did that on purpose. There was a, a, a Steve Price oh, way back see, that that's, was. If you think that he did that on purpose, that is so interesting because I often wonder that. I often wonder is this a shtick? Is this a performance? Because I've only had one experience with Steve Price and it was I was on the project and. I'm always in Sydney, the project's filmed in Melbourne, and so I'm always on a looking down a blank camera. I can't see who's asking me questions, right? right? And it was in the Charlie Pickering days, and Charlie Pickering asked me something, and Peter Hellier asked me something, and Carrie Bickmore asked me something, and it was all very nice and reasonable, and I'm laughing away. And then suddenly this voice, this male, aggressive, kind of um, belligerent voice came cut across and went straight for me. And it hits you like a smack in the head because you're just not – I didn't know he was there. Right. And um, I couldn't see him. Yeah. So – Sometimes when he's in the room, you can't either. Sorry. <laughs> That's a short joke. Sorry, Steve. I should attack your beliefs, not your, the you're way making, you look. you're making short jokes while I'm sitting opposite well, you, Anderson. Jane. That's just You're hurtful. a woman of enormous just... stature. I've never considered you to be a short person because you're a powerful presence when you enter a room. <laughs> I'm, so short. I'm so short. It's not funny. Uh, so, Steve. Steve Price, I have sympathy for you yep. there. I had no idea you were short. But I know how powerful a presence he is. And is if that's manufactured, there's something really awful about that. Because- uh, I agree. And, and it disappoints me. It yeah. breaks my heart. And often the thing is, because Steve and I will get into it if I ever do that show mm. as well, if we're on the same panel, because we just have very different beliefs. But Steve and I get on well off air like we have a you know we've had a long relationship and I've known him for a long time and you know like it does play out a bit like a panto but it disappoints me because when I look at somebody like that I think 
you know, that old, uh, if only he'd used his powers for good instead, instead of, of evil. evil. And yeah. it does feel a bit like that. It feels like it's a calculated choice in the same way as Trump feels like in often he's making a calculated choice to appeal to a certain part oh. of the, the audience there because that's a good career move. And to me, if your career is based on whipping up, like, you know, a frenzy against those less fortunate than you and you don't believe it. Yeah. I'll give some credit to the ones who actually believe it. Yeah, yeah. But the ones who don't believe it, yeah. yeah it's, it's, it's destructive on every level and kind of viscerally shocking. And to my philosophy, which is I try to be as truthful, truthful as, as I can, then it's, it's even sort of doubly um, more offensive to me. But I also have a problem with that particular style of, of confrontation. Uh-huh. And I don't know if it's just me or if it is a female thing. That style of confrontation, even if you're seen as I certainly am and as Van Batten certainly is, as quite a, you know, take no prisoners kind of a woman, actually it costs us quite a lot. Right. We're not safe in that environment. That's a scary environment for us. And if you look at what's happened to Van since, I mean, she's been um, absolutely lambasted with the most foul and disgusting kind of responses. Well, that's, that's what you can always rely on the internet to do. Yes. Essentially, the comments on any article will prove the point of the article. The article, exactly right. <laughs> Even if you didn't think the original thing was misogynist, yeah. every email that she got afterwards that's proves that it was misogynist. So. But the problem with that is, for women, it's not an intellectual exercise. Right. This is an unsafe space that we occupy where we know that there are groups of people out there who are just waiting for us to make a mistake and who will jump on you. Now, you may have decided, well, bugger that. I'm going to go out there and I'm going to say what I think anyway. I'm not going to allow myself to be silenced. But it doesn't make it comfortable. And that's why my my original feeling when I saw Van sandwiched, as you say, between the two white bread guys was, oh, no, poor Van – because you kind of knew where it was going to go yep. and you knew she wasn't going to take a backward step and you knew that she was going to pay for it. It's, it's interesting to me what you've said about the cost of it. Hannah Gadsby said something really interesting that struck a chord with me and she said it's often very easy and she was talking in relation to uh, gay rights mm. about this comment but it applies I think equally when it comes to men who want to be good allies to feminism mm. is that it's easy for a man to be a good ally for feminism or to gay people because you can step away from the battle whenever you want. Mm -hmm. You can choose your moments to be the ally, but it doesn't then go and affect the rest of your week or the rest of your life or the rest of your... If you don't live it. I've seen the small insight into it. If I retweet a Clem Ford comment or if I retweet (laughs) a thing, I get a small insight into what their everyday is like. Yeah. To, to be a person like as I have been who has had opinions and p- opinions that people certainly do not agree mm. with and have expressed themselves very vociferously about that, I have never in my entire time been threatened to be killed, be threatened to be raped, and yet I see these women on the internet who don't seem to be expressing opinions that are more substantial than the, the opinions that I have expressed, encountering this not as an exception but as the rule. How do you reconcile that how do you reconcile the fact that if you go on the telly or if you go on the radio and you have this opinion that is sympathetic to women in the workplace or is sympathetic to refugees or is sympathetic to one of these hot button issues that you know that a certain group of society will come after you how do you i mean there's got to be days where you're just like fuck it i just don't couldn't be bothered dealing with that this week oh yeah and then i just ignore the tweets and close down and don't get so involved in the conversation if my energy's not up i'm luckier 
than somebody like Van Batten or Clementine Ford or Catherine Deveni. I don't get the same level of sexualized abuse that they get. Now, my reason for that mm-hmm. is because I'm older. Older, yeah. I think that as women age, you gain a certain amount of authority in a way. You also gain a kind of invisibility, which means those particular men so don't give a shit about you. You are so irrelevant to them. Like they don't fancy you so what you say you, um, that you kind of fly under the radar a bit. They might find me irritating. The, the worst abuse I tend to get is you're um, an old, ugly, dried up hag. You know, that kind of thing. Yeah. I always go back and say old, correct, ugly, well, you know. Subjective. Oh, I, I would subjective. <laughs> you know, some people think I am, some people think I don't, don't really care. Dried up, yes, and what a relief that is. Uh, <laughs> Hag, yes, guilty as charged and proud of it. The other one I go back is with is, oh, so you don't find me sexually attractive? Oh, thank God for that. So, you know. But it goes to the very heart of the, the – and this is when we start having these conversations mm. about, like, it, the way that systems are set up in a way that isn't – like, you know, and it, we have broader conversations about women being represented in politics and stuff. But we talk about these – like, we talk about merit systems and these sort of things, but we don't understand that these systems are not set up on a meritocracy – but it goes to the very heart of what you're saying. You mm. see these comments to to Clem or to Dev or to these mm. sort of people and they eventually become sexualized. It's always, always. about I'm going to rape you or people don't want to fuck you or you're a slut or like, you're, I mean, it yeah. goes from one to the other. Oh, yeah. But it's always around sex. Yeah. And it's, it, it shows very much that that same psyche is like as soon as they don't see you as a sexualized being, you almost, you disappear. you're out of that. And, and actually, I'm here to tell you, God, that's a relief. Right. It's fantastic. <laughs> like, I can't tell you. I cannot tell you what how liberating it is. Right. Like, you know, I spent my early years in advertising with men staring at my tits and I hated it. Now no one bothers to look at my tits. They listen to what I have to say. That's all I ever wanted right. them to do. That's all I ever wanted them to do. And I think um, – I've now of the belief that actually getting older is liberating for women in a way that it isn't for men. This is partly physical, you know, you don't get periods anymore. There is simply no downside to that. You know, you're not a life support system for other human beings anymore. Wow, that's fantastic. And you have stopped being the sort of focus of male sexual desire, which doesn't have anything to do with you and is all about them. So you're free of that as well. It's so much better. It is one of those things, isn't it, that like – it, uh, it's it, it, on a very small level. It's like that thing of like when somebody gets a serious girlfriend and they suddenly discover there's heaps of women who are their friends. Yes, you know. <laughs> like, but there is a great relief in that. Like the great relief, you know, of being able to go. That's been taken out of any possibility of what this. Like you know. So now we can just move on to. Now the- we can be human beings with one another and actually just talk to one another as one person to another person. And that's all I ever wanted out of life and out of um, a situation with anyone. I, going back to that idea of wanting to be as truthful as I can, I try to use words. I don't always succeed, but I try to use words to get to know more about you. I want to find out about you. I want to connect with you. Mm. I want to understand you. I meet a lot of people who use words to do the exact opposite, who want to keep you at a distance. They want to kind of, you know, if, if, if it's a performance to be Steve Price, well, that's a tremendous guard. That's a way of putting up a fence that no one gets behind. Well, that's lonely, you know. I don't want to do that. I want to know – I want you to know who I really am and I want to know who you really are. 
Yeah, you almost want to. I mean, I'm always like, let's just get to that straight away, and then if we don't like each other, we've saved some time. Exactly, we can just. We don't have to keep on touch on Facebook. Exactly. (laughs) Sometimes you've you you invested three months before you realise you don't like the other person, (laughs) and you're like, oh, now we've got a routine. It's a bit hard to hit the block key now because it's a little embarrassing. Oh my god, the gym with now. (laughs) Now that I hate Barry, it turns out he's a One Nation voter. So let's talk. I mean, I've got so many things around this area that I would love to talk to you about, and we can just wander all over Mm. the place. But let's start with because we just touched on it. The current, I mean, we've just had an election here, so we might as well start with where we think we're at as a country, like, mm. you, know, you know, on a range of issues. What's your, we're now a week and a half, yeah, a week and a half, over a week and a half, but only four days or five days since it was actually, you know, settled. sort of settled. Mm. Uh, so what, what's your feeling? Where do you feel like we're at? How do you feel? Do, were you surprised at the result or was it something that you saw coming well, I'm very smug about that because I was asked for my opinion as to what would happen uh, by the New Daily two days before and I predicted a hung parliament with possibly uh, Malcolm Turnbull a nose ahead. Yes, Ooh, I can tell what's that's going good. on. good. Well, actually, it wasn't that pressing. I just looked at the polls right. and thought that's what they're saying. The fact that they were pretty much that, every poll. <laughs> yeah. It was surprising because I was overseas for the whole thing yeah. and I'm like you because all I'd seen was the polls and yeah. going, well, it's going to be pretty close. Yeah, yeah, so but then everyone was like, oh, we oh. thought it was. I was like, but were you reading the same polls I was reading? <laughs> All of them. Every single poll said it was going to be a draw. Why did you not think it was going to be a draw? It's a kind of incredible arrogance behind right. the – in a way, I'm going to point the finger at the Liberal National Party that they were so surprised by this because exactly what you said, that's what it looked like was going to happen. I mean, you could see there was a bit of desperation towards the last few days because Malcolm Turnbull came out and said, don't do a protest vote. You don't want the chaos of the Gillard years where she got through, I don't know, more legislation than just about any other parliament before or since, um, and all of that, which hints to the fact that they were pretty aware that they were, you know, hanging by a thread. But it seems they can't admit to that straight up. Now they're talking about they've got a mandate, they're going to put all their policies forward. And you think, I constantly think to myself when people say, well, you know, it's irresponsible of the opposition or the independents not to block our legislation. I just think, no, it's not. They were elected to parliament on a set of principles and policies and points of view. The people who voted for them expect them to stand up for those. That's why we have a representative democracy. They don't just cave in now because you got, you know, a few more seats than they did. They fight hard to represent the views of those people who voted for well, them. Well, particularly when you, when you look at the fact that, uh, you know, and both sides, like, by mm. the way, have very low, like, first votes. Oh, yeah, they like, do. You know, so it's not like one side has a majority in this country. In fact, it's been a very long time since one side on first preference has had any sort of majority. Mm. You always have to get preferences and form some sort of coalition. And so yeah, yeah. even two through deals. the nature of that, you're getting other voters, people who might have voted Green or people who might have voted National or whatever, you need them already. So the idea of there being a clear mandate, no, everybody has a mandate to fight in the parliament the things, including Pauline Hanson and all those sort of people, yeah, yeah. because they do. That's yep. that's how it works. And then hopefully, and this is what you when you talk about the chaos of the Gillard years, mm. you're absolutely right. Like historically, there was a lot of things that went wrong on the top level of that government, a myriad of things yes. that went wrong on the top level of that government. But on the actual day-to-day getting legislation through and having to negotiate deals and actually having a working parliament, so much more successful than the, the Abbott government or anything that has come since where they can't even pass budgets. No, exactly. so. Like She's really someone to hark back to and say, the good old days. But I think the problem is, and I've thought this for a long time, that we have a real situation at the moment once upon a time, the left were riven with ideology. Ideology yeah. was the problem of the left. But mm. it's, it's been beaten out of the left. Yeah. There's hardly any ideology left for them. 
the right is now captive to ideology. Yeah. And they are riven by quite serious splits and problems they don't know what to do about. Equal marriage is one of those, but so is climate change. Right. There's no split on the in the Labor Party about climate change or equal marriage. They're united on those. There's a huge problem on the right of Australian politics about those uh, because you've got the um, economic dries who are probably okay about gay marriage and pretty okay about I mean, climate to, change. To be honest, the economic dries probably pro marriage equality Correct. because there's been a myriad of surveys that show that the incredible like they're, they're talking about you know like billions of dollars <laughs> yes. straight into the economy because you've got all every the, wedding planner in australia is just hanging on that i mean you know because i mean again not all gay people the same no. every you know you can be a gay person of any but kind it's widening the market but also you've got a whole bunch of people who are ready to go yeah. and ready to get married and a whole bunch of people if you look at the demographics where you've got some high income earners and people who are going to splash out on these things if you're talking about something to replace the mining boom, yeah, like, yeah. I mean, really, it's a very – on an ec- just if you're talking Straight economics. Straight rational economics, absolutely. And in a way, the same with climate change. There's a whole lot of opportunities right. and new – you know, uh, Malcolm Turnbull uses the phrase inno- – or the word innovation a lot. Now, I think he's hinting at climate change and renewables and all that kind of thing. Right. But he's so hogtied by the conservative right wing of his party that he didn't actually use – it's code. It's a kind of left-wing dog, dog whistle as opposed to the usual right-wing dog whistles. So the the right of politics right across the world, world has some serious, you know, internal ideological issues that they haven't come to terms with. And that's going to mean that they have serious problems. And also we've got a split in the community. There's a whole lot of people who are changing and changing really powerfully. Women, uh, LGBTI people, and they're, they're not prepared to hide or pretend or take a backward step in the way that they once were. Um, people from different ethnic backgrounds aren't. Um, religion is losing tremendously its power and this terrifies the very religious. You can see that schism happening. Patriarchy in and of itself is being chiselled away. It is standing on an ever, ever more precipitous kind of basis um and you can see that the people who used to have power the people who expected as we started doing this to be deferred to just automatically because they were you know white men of a certain kind and a certain generation they're not getting that anymore and they are not going to let go of power without a fight and what we're seeing now is the beginnings of the fight you can definitely see it in the cultural wars. I mean, you know, safe schools were such a good example of uh-huh. like old white men of a well, not even just old white men, but white men of a certain kind and a mm. certain like yep. you know worldview where you got the feeling that they didn't have as much of a problem with the program as the fact that there were kids who needed that program. Yes. You know, yeah, that they just didn't want to live in a world where it was okay to be transsexual, or they didn't want to live in a world where kids were told it was okay to be gay. No, no, you no. You could be gay, but you still got to be teased for being gay and have a terrible <laughs> you, time and you be were bullied supposed to be for punished. For being gay. Yeah, and if you're dressed in different clothing, then you're a freak, and that's part of it. Yeah. You can be it, but we're going to tease you for being a freak. Which is exactly the same mentality which opposes women's right to an abortion. Mm. It's basically saying, listen, ladies, if you're going to have sex... There has to be a punishment, punishment. attached. Yeah. Either and a baby or an abortion. That's the two <laughs> major punishments <laughs> for sex. <laughs> but at least abortion is quick, simple and easy. You haven't yeah. had one. Um, yeah, what's the real punishment? <laughs> Babies. Let me tell you, having had those as well. I mean, the fact that, you know, you would see a baby as a punishment is a terrible thing. But that's the fear. The fear is if you take off those controls, yeah. 
then somehow society will just descend into some kind of godless abyss. Um, now, personally, I think a godless abyss sounds like an awfully good place to be, but there you go, I'm an atheist. Uh, when did you come to your atheism? Like, uh, that's an interesting thing to me because I always uh, – you know, I don't try to judge anyone for when they came to it because I grew up in it. My dad doesn't believe in God at all. He's a dairy farmer, not mm. and not an atheist. I don't think he'd even consider himself to be an atheist. I mm. just think he was one of those guys who just never saw the point or the idea yeah. of it and just has no real opinion on it. Yeah. We used to go to uh, Church of England, like uh, Sunday school and like church. My nana, like my mum's mum, like, you know, believes in God, is religious. And so we would do it for her and yeah. stuff. And then um, uh, about 13 or so, I was just like, I don't feel like any of this really makes sense. Yeah. And then I just stopped and my, everyone seemed fine with that. That yeah. just like, that was Wasn't just kind of how it happened. Yeah. But then I see people like Dev, for example, who came to her atheism like really late, you know. Yeah, from Catholicism. From, exactly. Mm. And you see those people come out of it hard. Yeah. That's the thing that I see because there's, and I can be guilty of this myself, you know, like kind of the Ricky Gervaises of the world where I'm like, yeah, we get it, mate. There's no fucking God. We all knew that when we were 13. Yeah. Like, why do you bang on about it all the time, you know? But that's not my journey and I haven't been – I didn't have much that I was rejecting. Some, yeah, that's right. You're sometimes sometimes uh, people who've just quit smoking are the worst anti-smoke. You know <laughs> yeah, I mean? yeah, because, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, what about you? When when was your when what how were you raised? Where you know was there a religious upbringing? When did it come to you? No, see we were quite odd, and I didn't realise we were odd. Yeah. It was normal to me. Like your family's always normal to you when you're a kid. Right. Um, and it wasn't until I got older that I realised that in my particularly on my father's side there was literally no religious tradition at all. So none, none, none. So how does that happen? Well, exactly. We think from. Uh, well, now we kind of know that that originally his family were Jewish. Mm -hmm. But at some point, we don't know when that was, okay. they just moved away from Judaism completely and they moved away from it so comprehensively that there was literally no memory of it. And they didn't move into any other religious tradition. So they were just non-religious. Right. Yep. I mean, that very would have unusual. been very unusual. Very unusual. And then my mother's family were Methodists and mm. quite strong Methodists. And my mother was brought up to be a Methodist and was a Methodist until she always describes it as she heard a um, debate on the radio. She was doing the ironing. She had small children. Um, she had a very vivid picture uh, of my mother at this point. And she's listened to a debate on the radio between an Anglican archbishop, a Catholic um, cardinal, um, a Methodist somebody or other, you know, a group of, you know, highfalutin churchmen and they're all debating about whose God was the right one and she just listened to it and she said it came to me like an absolute bolt. They were all talking utter horseshit. Right. Now, my father is not like your father. He's not a big atheist. In fact, he would probably call himself an agnostic. Right. You know, he, he's sort of – he's not that interested. He doesn't bother having an opinion. No. It. It's, you know – doesn't whatever. really affect his day-to-day. -day. No. And he, he never thinks about God. Like, that just doesn't kind yeah, of enter that's, into it. that's what I think my dad probably yeah. is as well. I don't think he's ever had a decent enough thought to say there is no God. <laughs> he just went, well, no, I mean, God's not milking the cows at four, so no, – It's irrelevant to me. <laughs> yeah. This God, I think my father would have said, this God person, I don't yeah. know, this is the first this... I've heard of him. Yeah. <laughs> This God, God everybody's talking, talking about. about. Is he a Pokemon of some Yes, God? exactly. <laughs> Where do I find him? Um, whereas my mother is now such a, a like lapsed Methodist. She's proving – my parents are proving your point absolutely that you could call her an anti-Christian, anti-Methodist, and she is in fact 
very definitely an atheist. There is absolutely nothing. You know, she's really strong about that. Um, so I'm somewhere in between. For me, I find it interesting when I talk to people who have strong religious faith because for them it is almost inconceivable that I could be a perfectly contented, quite cheerful, you know, reasonably morally okay human being with no religious faith at all and not feel any loss of it. That I've noticed because I've, I've co-written a book with um, three other authors, Simon Smart, who's a Christian, um, Rachel Woodluck, who's a um, Muslim, and Anthony Lowenstein, who's a cultural Jew. He's an atheist, but he uh-huh. was brought up Jewish. And me, who was an atheist atheist. Um, so my atheism, I was brought up. You know, I'm like, I'm yeah. like your CEO. You were raised atheist. I was raised atheist, you know. Yeah, to be honest, I was just raised atheist. Yeah, yeah, uh, to be honest, like, yeah. you know. And I've I never mean, I still, go to, I still go to atheist dinner on yeah. Tuesday, but, <laughs> you know. I mean, it's really. And I occasionally say to my mother, yeah, mum, God is bullshit, you yeah. know, just to keep her happy. Yeah, yeah, but otherwise, I mean, I still say bless you when people sneeze. <laughs> exactly. I'm, not, I'm not weird about it. No, I'm not weird about it. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's kind of um, always been part of. Who I am that I just think. So I let, I, okay. So uh, the next question for me on that is, uh, well, actually, there's two. I'm mm. going to ask one, and then I'll, yeah. I'll reverse back to something that you mentioned. But the um, first one is, so then when you had children, mm. when it came to religion, mm. what was your approach in, like, you know, explaining to them, you know, what what religion was or how it might or might not fit into their lives? Like, did you have an approach to that? Yeah, I mean. It was quite interesting because it wasn't religion that really was when we first having those discussions. It was actually death, right? Because I, remember- I think that's where it first. Yeah, I mean death. I mean religion is just so you feel good about death, right? Yeah. I mean mostly we're terrified of dying, yeah. and we want to know that there's something better than what we have, yeah. which is why religion is so high in countries where people have terrible lives. Is because you've got to believe there's a better life than the life that you have, and in places like Australia where we have high quality of life, people are like fucking why would I go to heaven, mate? Yeah, exactly. Fucking Bondi's fine. Yeah, exactly. It's just down the road. What? I always think heaven. Can you imagine a worse place? Right. Full of full of yeah, Corey pl- Bernardi oh. and. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, no, no gay people. It's no, like exactly. terrible time. It's like, what are we doing? Um, but yeah, but I, I am interested in like uh, the idea of like death because it can be such a comfort, and that's the one time where I am always very careful about people's religious beliefs is around death. If someone yeah. believes that their auntie has died and gone to heaven, and that mm. gives them comfort through that hard time, I find it hard as a person, just yeah. as a person, to say. You know, I, I would have some atheist friends who are like, well, you know, it's just bullshit and they're not going to another place and they should get I used know. to that. And, but, but I'm not that person. No. Not if somebody's getting comfort out of it. So my, what do you say to kids when well, you first start to talk about death? Because that must be a hard one. Yeah, it was a really clear moment that it happened with my eldest daughter. She was only about three, very young. And we were watching Baba, you know, about the elephant. Uh-huh, yeah. And it's one of the early episodes where Baba's mother gets killed by the hunter. It's amazing how many children's things start with the death of a mother. It's really interesting how many stories. It's the child's biggest fear, so wow. that's a way of working through it. I guess so, but like, yeah. wow. It's really interesting. You think about it, Bambi, <laughs> he's, he's you know, like, Snow White, you know, let's go on. They're all, you know, the death of the mother. All right, so, chapter one, kill mum. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's a, you're a children's author, that's where you start. <gasps> wow. So, um, you know, the, the Baba's mother is killed by the hunter. And Polly turned around and she said to me, when's um, Baba's mother coming alive again? And I said, well, she isn't going to. And Polly said, what do you mean? And I said, well, she's dead. And when you're dead, that means 
you're you're finished. You're over. You don't come alive again. Baba's mother no longer exists. Baba is on his own, and he needs to find friends and help so that he can survive on his own. And she didn't get upset. She just thought about it. And because my view, we go back to how we started. My view is always tell the truth, even if it's hard to tell the truth. So another time that this happened, and it's about Santa Claus rather than Baba. But well, weirdly enough, I was about to ask you that thing. I said, "Well, then how do you how do you go with Easter Bunny, Santa Claus, Tooth Fairy, etc." Well, she asked me one day. She was about six. She said to me, "Mum, is there a Santa Claus?" I looked at her and I thought, oh, "Jesus, uh, here we go, here we go." And so I said, "Look, honey." What answer would you want? Right. Do you want the answer that's nice or do you want the answer that's true? And she said, I want the answer that's true. And I said, no, there's no Santa Claus. She said, no, I didn't think there was. Right. And I said, no, there isn't. Doesn't it's... really make sense if you think about it, <laughs> does it? <laughs> well done. <laughs> and some of my friends got really angry with me because they said, but my, I tell my child there is one and right. now Polly might tell them there isn't one. And I said, well, I'm sorry about that. But I've made a commitment to myself and to my children that if they ask me a question, I'm going to tell them the truth, even if... It's difficult for me to do that because I want them to feel that they can rely on me to tell them the truth. Right. Because even if you tell them nice lies, well, you're still living in a murky universe where things you believe turn out not to be true. I mean, I do always find it interesting. I don't have children of my own, so all Mm. this is all theoretical, you know, when I I think about it. Um, But that idea of... You, you're constantly telling your children to be truthful, yet we go constantly lying to <laughs> our children. Which about never made sense everything. to me. Never made sense to me. And I think I got this view very strongly from my father, whose absolute bedrock thing was be honest. Right. Like, I'll forgive you for just about anything else. But lying is not on, and you've got to be honest, not only to other people, but to yourself. Yeah, well, so it's, it's really surprising important. that kids like actually don't go, like when you're like, hey, do your homework, you're like, I don't trust you. You told me yeah. there was a fairy that took away our teeth <laughs> exactly. for money, you well, liar. Well, but you know about homework and it's Yeah, uses. exactly. Precisely. That was my thinking. I mean, maybe, you know, a lot of people didn't agree with me, but that's what I did. And the same with religion. I would be asked, you know, girls ask me, is there a God? And I'd say, well, some people believe very strongly yeah. that there is a God. Um, your father and I don't happen to believe that there is one. Oh, okay. I had my niece, who is now joined the family tradition of godless um, immorality, was a very, very passionate Christian from the age of about six to about 14 or 15. Her parents had no religion at all and Alice would take herself off to church and go to the local, you know, she was, and she was so religious and she would get terribly upset that her parents were not because she would say, well, you know, you're going to go to hell and I don't want you to go to hell, which is awful actually when you think about it. I mean, it's terrible, right? <laughs> the things, I mean, we never had that one. We never had the hell thing. No. I can't remember because I was into church as well because like singing and I used to do readings and stuff. To be honest, Jane, I was into standing in front of people talking. Yes. But, you know, that the church was the only place <laughs> I could do it. There any, wasn't any stand-up any clubs pool around. Any do. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it was a free gig. Yeah, but yeah. Got some cake afterwards. Mm. Uh, we, you touched on uh, godless immorality. Yeah. Uh, you know, and it comes back to that question that I do think is at the heart of sometimes the thing that can't be comprehended by people who have deep faith is where does your faith or where does your morality come from if you don't have like you know a guiding principle by which you you know 10 commandments yeah correct like the if first five a- of which you say love me and don't love anyone else which yeah. is a pretty narcissistic thing for anyone to say yeah and um, uh, as some comedian may have been louis ck pointed out doesn't mention rape at all <laughs> not even in the top 10 or slavery don't, don't cover your neighbor's ass but yeah. maybe just sneak rape into the yeah, yeah. into the top 10 <laughs> 
Just for the priests, if nothing else. Just as a Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, there's a whole lot left out of the Ten Commandments. Um yeah, it's funny, isn't it? It seems to me a fairly poor reason to try to do the right thing simply to avoid punishment. Right. That's a kind of infantile, that's a, that's a very early development stage in becoming an adult human being where you don't do this because you might get into trouble. Surely you need to think more carefully about things like, and look, it is the basic thing which is the premise of all religions and the premise of most philosophies, which is simply that don't do to others what you wouldn't want done to you and do do to others what you would want done to you. And that covers just about everything rather more succinctly and more comprehensively than the Ten Commandments. Well, the interesting thing is that the golden rule, which is what you're Mm. talking about, and it's like is at the basis of every religion, which is the thing that like people outside religions are so aware of, which Mm. is that idea of like, yes, I mean, it's the thing that always confuses me when a Christian is so angry at a Muslim or vice versa, whereas I think actually a Christian and a Muslim in some ways have much more in common than a Christian and an atheist in that at least they both believe that there is a higher purpose and a higher purpose. And to be honest, those two stories intersect. Like some of the same characters overlap in those. You'd think they would, you know, be like, oh, okay. Hey, brother. Yeah, Yeah. We both both think Jesus happened. We interpret it a little different where he is in the hierarchy. level of importance, yeah. But we both have him as a character in the show. So, you know. Uh, it is interesting to me that idea of like uh, you know doing things because you know you have decided yourself. So how do you then decide what is important to you? Because I think this is one of those things that I think we spend a lot of our time. And I I, I got here. Uh, you were doing another mm. interview, and mm. I was uh, you know, eavesdropping yeah. on your interview as as you were finishing up. And mm. one of the things that you touched on, which is a thing that I am fascinated about, is about the 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 nature of work mm. and you know the kind of world that we're in now where like you know busyness is certainly fetishized and we were promised this idea that technology would make all of our lives more simple but it seems to be that technology has in fact made us all slaves to work and technology and mm-hmm. and I don't want to give any more of my thoughts on that. I just want to use that as a, 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 yeah. a, a launching you know pad for you know mm. some of the things that you were exploring. Yeah. Well, Look, I, I think the way I decide about whether I should do something, and I mean I do all sorts of things I shouldn't do, but the way I basically decide is it's sort of a cost-benefit analysis in a weird kind of a way. Um, you know, if I do this, will it really hurt someone? In which case I shouldn't do it no matter how much I want to do it. If I do this, will it really help someone? Well, then maybe I should do it even if I'm feeling a bit lazy and I don't really want to. And it's sort of simple. And all, all I try to be, and, you know, like everybody else, I fail to live up to my own standards, but all I try to be is to make people feel better about themselves when they're around me rather than worse about themselves. So my view is that if I can give people energy rather than take the energy from people, then I'll feel better 
people around me will feel better and life will be better for everyone. So in a way it creates its own kind of reward in that it just is a more pleasant situation to find yourself in. Now, can that be draining for you though if you're constantly putting out all that energy? Like, or does it have a, does it invigorate you in return? It invigorates me in return when I feel that it's, you know, I've connected and uh-huh. that, you know, we, we're having this really good conversation and we're having fun and we're feeding one another and they feel safe and comfortable and, and relaxed with me and so they can be themselves and not try to pretend to be something they're not and I therefore can do the same the sorts of conversations I can't deal with and I find drain me completely are those where everybody's sort of watching out for what everyone else is doing and it's really I mean I used to suffer with them at advertising lunches where it was wasn't a lunch it was a kind of quip competition right and I would develop <laughs> huge pools of sweat, you know, right. from worrying about whether I was being witty enough, whether I was keeping up, because it's not my natural way. You know, I, I actually want to turn around and find out what makes you tick. But also it's not I, – I would argue, and again, many mm. exceptions to all these rules. I mm. always hesitate to, you know it, – but it's not a particularly female way of communicating. No, it's not. Like, Amy – hates like i have a out the back of a mm. house i'll do all the podcast or anything mm. that like i'm you know where i've got guys over being funny riffing yeah she's like oh it's not gonna be one of the the minute anytime i invited us up and she's like oh it's not gonna be one of those things where comedians just stand around riffing is it because of course it will be because that's yeah. what men in that environment and particularly in a very sort of alpha sort of way that advertising environment mm. is always like i'll be the funniest person right yeah. it's i win a very, the funny war the, it's a very the way humour is used to establish status in those situations is exactly what happened. If anyone's heard the Eddie Maguire, Caroline Wilson tape of the mm-hmm. rub, that's exactly what was happening mm-hmm. in that situation. Yeah. It was just a bunch of guys who ordinarily, because I listened to that show, mm-hmm. The Rub, I'm an AFL football fan mm-hmm. and I enjoyed that show mm-hmm. because normally in the show it's a bunch of them bullying each other. Uh-huh. Yeah. And that's a very male Australian particular traditional way to establish. But the thing is that in that room, and this is what I explained to people afterwards, I said in that room, the bullying, or the status always changes. Yeah. So that's the difference between a private joke and when it c- goes out into the public and becomes broader like that. If they're all in a room making fun of each other and you never know who's going to be the butt of the joke and who's going to be high status, I love that and I yeah. find that endlessly entertaining. Mm. The minute you take that out and you take somebody and in this case a woman, all men doing this, mm. and then they take a woman energy and a very respected mm-hmm. uh, you know, commentator and journalist like Caroline Wilson and then not only – like she's not there, she's not part of the joke. No, she can't come back at them. Can't come back. She's not going to get an opportunity later in that break to be high status in that yeah. conversation nah. and be the winner. And it's not in that safe confine of where it normally happens. That's when those things, those jokes become more than that. They become a real – and that was the thing about that. I have mixed emotions about Ian Maguire. Um, I have had a lot of very good uh, conversations with him Mm. and I do think that he is genuinely uh, a, a voice and a force for progressive change on a lot of areas. But I also feel that he – the problem is that the 10% is the – it's all in that area. Yeah. It all and so talk to me about how you feel. Did you follow that? Oh case? yeah, yes. I, I watched and it. Uh, what did you? What were your feelings? Because I'm, I I can't see it from an outside point of no. view. Look, the problem for I I sat in 
you know, creative departments for 30 years, often the only woman in the creative department. You know, sometimes when I say, people say to me, how do you manage the trolls? I say, I have been bullied by the wittiest men in Australia. Right. Trolls are no fears for me. Yeah. Um, so I know exactly the banter conversation and the status seeking that that kind of thing does. And some people do it beautifully with real generosity of spirit and heart. And somehow they always kick up. They don't kick down. Right. But some people never master it and some people are scary in that situation. You know they're looking for your weakness and your vulnerability. Yep. And the problem is in our society to be a woman is a vulnerability. Uh-huh. It is a weakness. There's nothing you can do about it. You are a woman. You are a woman your whole life. Right. And so that weakness, that vulnerability can't be disguised by banter. It is. And every single woman who's ever gone into a male-dominated environment, workplace, whatever, and tried to establish her place in the hierarchy has been the butt of those jokes in the way Caroline Wilson was. And so we don't identify with the banterers. We identify with the person who is being really put at the very bottom of the hierarchy. And the problem with that conversation as I understand it, is what triggered it, that Caroline Wilson had written an article saying that Eddie Maguire had done a very good job but he'd been there a long time and it was time to go. So it's hard not to see. Oh, no. yeah, It it wasn't banter. And he was. Oh, no, no, no. He had an agenda that he was clearly pursuing and there was more behind the words than the words. And it's intent. Look, I can hear a joke where someone says something that's a bit clunky and a bit sexist or whatever, but they don't mean it. The intent right. is not to be nasty. Okay, I'll forgive you. When the intent is actually to be nasty, to grind your nose in the dust a bit, then no, it's not nice and it isn't funny. Right. And no, you're going to get shit for it. And you know what? You deserve to get shit for it. It just uh, To me, it, 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 I get embarrassed. I get embarrassed that those guys can't see how good she is Mm. and how amazing – because, yes – And how tough she does it. Ah, well, this is – I mean, again, this goes back to this point we've talked about, about people in, like, male-dominated industries. And I'm hypersensitive to this, by the way, because as a white straight man who has been both, like, in the world of stand-up comedy and television and now adjunctly Mm. to the world of advertising, they are, again, three industries that have been dominated, you know, by white straight men. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's a – there's an insight into these things that I will never have, but I'm constantly aware that whenever anyone says this sort of stuff doesn't happen, I've seen three industries, three <laughs> industries that I've been part of where I, I mean, th- that very thing you're talking about, like is wh- why wasn't there more female stand-up comedians? Because every time they would walk into an open mic room, there'd be eight guys yeah. standing around, you know, picking apart each other and then picking apart that. That's a hostile environment for a young female comedian who's already nervous about starting doing stand-up comedy, you know. It's, I mean, a, it's just – and you, you, you need – everyone needs – everyone needs, men as much as women. They need to feel that in some way they're in an environment that wants them to be there. Right. And as soon as you walk into an environment where you know everybody there doesn't want you and wants you to fail – 
that is a nasty place to be. And I think Caroline Wilson forced her way into sports no journalism. Doubt. She's always known that a lot of the people there don't want her there. Oh. So, of course, it's horrible for her. And every, it's like Julia Gillard's misogyny speech, yep. which so many people tried to tear down, you know. And she, look, she said it on the same day that she cut the bloody single mother's pension. And I that know. was a pain in the ass of a stupid thing to do. And the timing was even worse. Yeah. But nevertheless, I punched, I had tears in my eyes and I punched the air when I heard that speech. Why did it resonate so much? Because every woman has been in the situation that she had found herself in. And even though she was the Prime Minister of a country, she was, well, even though, because she was the Prime Minister of a country, she was copping all that shit we constantly cop. And we have all smiled, sucked in the humiliation pushed it down, held our, ourselves together and then headed for the ladies and cried our eyes out because we've been publicly humiliated by guys building their own status at your, um, your expense. And, so, well, the thing that also... We hate it. Uh, the thing that I... Uh, you know, the, the Gillard misogyny thing, the thing that I just think that people misunderstand is people might have a political disagreement mm. with that person. And like, you know, Barack Obama is another good example. So we can use a black person mm. as well in this. Yeah. Your first disagreement might be with them might be political, but then the next step would be to then gender the language of like, you know, you know I hate the carbon tax, you slut. Or like, She's a bitch. Yeah, he's a, yeah, that N word or whatever. You know what I mean? Like that's that and black then you bastard go, and he does blah, blah. Right. The Where people think they're disagreeing with them politically, politically. but they're bringing the, to the table the other thing as well. And, and I mean, I disagree with Theresa May politically, but, you know, she's made it to second female Prime Minister of Britain. Good for her. I congratulate her on that. And yet people immediately started to say, oh, it's Margaret Thatcher too. Sorry? Why is it Margaret Thatcher right. too? Because they both have vaginas, so they're going to be identical? Jesus. Are you sure Margaret Thatcher had a vagina? <laughs> Well, I can't prove it. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> she was the Iron Lady. Yeah. Anyway, so let's. But, let's you know, talk. but you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah, you know? I do. It's like I mean, gosh. of course. And it, well, in the very same way that like some people seem to have thought that like because you know they perceive that Julia Gillard did or didn't do a good job. And look again, I'm no def- particular defender of it. Julia Gillard. To me, in a lot of ways, was disappointing. On me too. On because I had known her previously, mm. and I had. A, a great deal of sort of admiration for some of the things she'd done and yeah the marriage equality thing I thought was a massive massive misstep and yeah anyway there was a bunch of things but the point being that there's been, since there's been this kind of like well you can't have a woman leader now because it didn't work and I'm like well hang on A let's argue over whether it worked or not but B <laughs> You don't seem to as worry about having a man one, right. after Tony Abbott. And We've had plenty work. of idiot blokes. Yeah, exactly. But that's because women still represent all women. I keep arguing right. that only men are people. Yeah. When people but say, that's true. People do this, they mean men. Yeah. When they, If it's women, they say women do this. Like uh, the greatest, best illustration. Well, they normally mean white men. Uh, like uh, Kumail, oh, Nan, Kumail Nanjiani, who's it, like a, fr- yeah. fr- a friend of mine, he said, he just goes, it must be really nice not to represent your race at all times. <laughs> exactly. And I was like, yeah, I guess. I, guess, I mean... On a really to be not your a white man is the norm that everything else is kind of judged by. None I'm, of us are I, normal. But you know, I mean, again, I I, I don't mean yeah. this flippantly, but no. I mean it to illustrate a point. There's nothing that I enjoy more than with my friends going down to a local park and having a drink. But if I was an indigenous person and it was a group of my indigenous friends having a drink in a park, they'd all look at you a certain right? way. But I'm a white guy, so I've never had that. No. Never had anyone think you shouldn't be drinking that beer. Well, probably I have, yeah. <laughs> but I for different reasons. Challenge that. Yeah. But also, even if you are, you're a drunk. You, the individual, right. are a drunk. Yeah, correct. Not 
all you represent all your yeah. or if a woman's drunk oh she's really you know that she's that's disgraceful she's let what about her dignity mm-hmm. there's a harsher judgment that the, and that's what comes of being in a subordinate culture and that's all that it's about um but the hardest part is when there's still this desire to say it doesn't exist and so when you point it out, you get into trouble. So it's like a, it's like a no-win situation. So if you don't point it out and you just have to suck it up and be silent about it, well, then nothing changes and you kind of constantly have to sort of swallow your anger at this stuff and that eats away at your soul, frankly. But when you do bring it up, you get the response like Van Badham gets. You know, if you do bring it up, you get told that you're being playing the victim card, that you're over-exaggerating, that you're too sensitive, that it's bullshit, you see trouble where there is none. So it doesn't matter which reaction you choose to have. It's not a good reaction for you. It's not going to work. I mean, it's one of those things where that's the one that I find hardest to understand Mm. which is the idea that people aren't acknowledging that it exists that's the bit that i don't get like i can i'm happy for people to have a debate over what the best way to rectify things are but like for example let's take a really simple one just to start which is uh women's representative like representation in politics i mean we we go back to the abbott government that first cabinet had one woman like one Mm. one as i used to say in my stand-up like minimum you should have like more women in your cabinet that have come out of your dick yeah <laughs> like he had three out of his dick yeah, like yeah, you know yeah. like at least have that many in your cabinet well, i would have thought more but, women in your cabinet than people who went to the same school as you right absolutely but if we recognize as a society right if we say women are graduating university so let's take that as our starting point this is the point i come mm. back to a bit on the podcast but if we want to take a starting point where you're like, okay, all these people, whatever happened to them beforehand, have got to the point where they've been accepted to university and they are going to, yeah, they're about mm-hmm. to graduate. Well, they've graduated university. Mm-hmm. Now, there's going to be bigger issues about debts and lifetime mm-hmm. things. And mm-hmm. the, but let's just take that as men and women equal starting point yep. here. Women are graduating university at a rate equal to or in front of men mm-hmm. at that point, right? Yep. yep. So why are they so underrepresented in our federal parliament? Exactly. So why are they? Well, because we still cast our leaders as if they were riding charges into battle. There's a really interesting um, bit of research that shows that the percentage of leaders of major companies who are over six foot is disproportionate to the percentage of people over six foot in the population. Right. So... We have got a kind of Neanderthal image of what a leader is. And leaders, by definition, are not female. So as soon as – and there's more to it than that. There's another wonderful piece of research. Um, Sheryl Sandberg quotes it in her book, Lean In, which is a very good book, actually. It's much vilified, but I liked it. she talks about what's called the Heidi Howard experiment. And basically, it's a whole bunch of CVs. They just put Heidi oh, yeah. on some of them yep. and Howard on the other. They're identical. They get a mixed group of people to review the CVs and they're asked to mark them for skills and likability. Well, Howard and Heidi are marked the same for skills, yep. which makes sense. Identical CVs. But the higher they mark Howard on skills, the higher they mark him for likability. The higher they mark Heidi for skills, the lower they mark her for likability. So the great cost for women who go out there and say, like Hillary Clinton, elect me, or Julia Gillard, allow me to lead you, is that the automatic response is, you must be a selfish cow asking for things for yourself, and you're a very talented self. Well, 
Women like that, they're just nasty. Because we have a deeply 2,000-year-old ingrained belief that women are here to serve others, not to promote themselves. And it's going to take a bloody long time for us to get over that. Is not, and I mean, you will laugh at me when I say this, but isn't the whole idea of representative parliament to serve others? <laughs> like, isn't that the literal description of what we're talking about? I do wish you'd go around and tell some of those <laughs> people who are doing the representing yeah. Oh, about you're that. so naive, young oh, Anderson. Uh, no. Uh, no, I know. Do you, you believe in uh, quotas as a way to... Yes, I shockingly do. Mm-hmm. I didn't. I didn't. I used to say, no, but I think we should have targets and we should have make sure that employment lists had X number of women on them. But the older I get and the tighter I get, I've been fighting this fight yeah. for as long as I can remember, the more I think, no, if we're going to change something. Right. Sometimes you just have to enforce it first. And when people go, oh, but that's not fair, we need merit, blah, 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 blah. I, th- I say to them, yes, but you are forgetting about the 100% quota that operated on men's behalf for 2,000 years, which was legally enforced and still remains enforced in half the world, which has given men a leg up that women can never hope to emulate. And all we're asking for, generally, is 30 or 40%, positively meek in I, comparison to the 100%. I mean, intellectually, if you think about that idea of going, we believe that uh, women are equally talented as men and as a country, mm-hmm. it would benefit us to have equal amount of women and men in that conversation because, you know, a myriad of studies have showed that women are more interested in what the economy actually pays for than the actual idea of just the economy. Yeah, exactly. I love how we always talk about the economy as or like the thing. budget <laughs> or a thing as opposed to the fact that taxes are to pay for hospitals and schools and oh, we've got a surplus. Yeah, that just meant you didn't spend our taxes on things we needed so just don't boast about that as much as you are that's right when we when a society when a a government has a surplus the community is in deficit we're proud that we didn't build your eight hospitals those kids who aren't getting the education they deserve yeah we did that we've got some money but we're not using it on that vote for us we're fiscal conservatives exactly uh, there is an element of you've got to acknowledge that if that's not happening, you know, if you hear that Tony Abbott mm. argument about merit and then you look around at the idiot men that he's got in that cabinet, I mean, you could literally pull a woman off the street. Please do not pull a woman off the street. Uh, but you could ask, <laughs> ask for her permission first. to come in and you'd find somebody who could do a better job. So if that's not happening, then surely you've got to look at saying well there's something about the way that this system operates Mm. and of course if it's been set up for men like the way that the parliament works Mm. the way that you're away from home as much those sort of things were because a man could just go away from home and leave his children with his wife because that's how life was and but there's something else really important about having more women in positions of power i don't think for a minute that they'll be better at being in power than men Mm. will be i don't I don't subscribe to that view that women are nicer than men. Rubbish. Um, Women have to pretend to be nicer than men to get ahead half the time, but they're not actually nicer than men. They're not nastier than men either. They're just, you know, as varied as men. I don't subscribe to that idea that they'll do the job better necessarily, but they have a different life experience. And so when you get tables of men making decisions about all sorts of things, just recently the education department has decided to change the way people can return to work after leave and they have, without thinking it through, made it discriminatory against women having children as teachers and then trying to come back into the profession. They've made it harder and they want to take them back to a beginner's pay regardless of what. Why? Because there weren't any women 
or not enough of them sitting right. around that table Making saying, that, go, hey. hang on, hang on a second, that's not going to work for us. Superannuation doesn't work for women. Why? Because there weren't any women there to say our right. lives are different from yours. Yeah. So it isn't just about <laughs> You know when you were merit. getting all that money put in your super and I was at home looking <laughs> yeah, after yeah. everything? Yeah. That and hasn't benefited me now yeah. that we broke up. So. Yeah. And now I'm sleeping out of my car. Right. So, I mean, that's why you also need women at the table because they bring a different perspective and that perspective needs to be paid attention to. Nah, you're all going to bloody ruin the economy. You want your tampons paid for and stuff. That's right. No luxury tax on tampons. <laughs> it is. It, you talk about education and this yeah. is an area that you are very passionate about and one that I uh, would love to talk to you about because mm. I think it's, um, it's nice to have someone on who has like, you know, such considered and passionate thoughts about it because the thing that constantly comes up on this podcast is education and mm. the idea of education. A lot of the people who um, uh, have been on this podcast, you know, were, were scholarship winners yeah. and that gave them an opportunity to get a good you know, convers- mm. education. You're very passionate about public education, yeah. yes. So yeah. talk to me about how you think our what, – what, what's good and bad about our education system and where what, what could be better about it? Well, one of the major problems with our education system is that it is one of the so, most socially stratified in the Western world. So basically what we do is we privilege the already privileged and we further disadvantage the already disadvantaged – and I'm talking about children – are through our education system because we have a publicly subsidised private school system which has all the rights. So it can decide to accept a child or not. I mean, we talk about parental choice. Actually, no parents have any choice. Some schools have choice over which kids they will or won't educate. Some schools have no choice at all. And the public system, by and large, has all the responsibilities. It has to shoulder the responsibility for the education of all children. Education is compulsory in Australia. Right. Private schools don't have to shoulder any of that responsibility. We do not say that in return... So, hang on. They they get government money, but they don't have to take... They can pick and choose who they want. I did not know that. Yeah, they can pick and choose who they want. They can decide they won't have that child. People talk about private schools better because they have discipline. What they mean is they can get rid yeah. of the troublemakers and guess what? Dump them yeah. on the public system. Yeah, average goes up if you just get rid of the duds. <laughs> exactly. It's very easy to it's do. Easy to do. Yeah. It's easy to be excellent right. when you don't have to <laughs> deal with any difficulty. Right, yeah. So that infuriates me quite apart from anything else. Also seems to be kind of counter to the idea of education, doesn't it? It so totally is the opposite of what you should be doing. You don't build a class system via education. You do the opposite. It's meant to actually break down class systems. Right. Oh, no, not in egalitarian Australia. And then we sneer at the public system. Mm-hmm. We're so – you know, people will say, oh, yeah, the public schools are terrible. Can't send you. Well, I send my kids to bloody co-ed – Comprehensive public schools saved a fortune. Right. Thank you very much, and they've done fine. Um, so that's nonsense, right from the get go. It's interesting that you say that, though, because that's the argument that sometimes I hear, which is that idea of going people who are very passionate about mm. the idea of public schooling, but at the same time are like, except that you know, I want my kid to have like, yeah, this is the system we have at the moment, and I want my kid to have the best opportunity, so I'm going to send them to private school regardless. Like, what do you think of that like point of view? You must hear that, right? Well, I think it's. Say what you think. I think Always be honest, Jane. I think it's, <laughs> I think it's garbage. Right. Um, and I think it's also what are you teaching your children? So you're teaching your children that they, you can hold a belief, but as soon as it gets a little bit difficult for you, you can just walk away from it and do uh-huh. what suits you. That to me is not a good is not good modelling. Right. And also, I think you don't believe in the public system. You believe oh, we should have nice public schools for the riffraff. 
But my children, they have to have something special. Um, because- I mean, it's crazy. Like, I mean, I live, uh, you know, in a part of Sydney mm. where to give uh, anyone listening uh, around the world or in Australia who does not know it, uh, the school from looking for Ella Brandy <laughs> that has a better view of the Sydney Harbour than Malcolm Turnbull's house does. I mean, you go by there and just to see the amount of, like, well, money. But I have friends who came out of the Melbourne versions mm. of those schools and the stories they tell of the idea of the entrenched privilege, oh, yeah. not just of the fact that they are in this environment and get these better opportunities and have these better opportunities to, you know, we know that education is the great tool for moving people from one social strata to another and we're enforcing it with the top strata already having the best access to education. But not just that, there's a mindset within it that promotes entitlement. Oh, yeah. Oh, I think part of the problem that we have with the kinds of leaders we have in our parliament is that they have been told from a very early, right. you're special. You're the leaders of tomorrow. It's the story you keep hearing about Malcolm Turnbull. It's like when he was 13, they said he was going to be Prime Minister. And now he is, and guess what? He's not special. He's not even very good at it. He's not good at being Prime Minister. He's not very good. Because he he doesn't have actually anything he believes in. He just believed he wanted to be Prime Minister. And also, he's not been tested. Right. Because he hasn't been in the rough and tumble of a public school. Right. The rough and tumble of a public school is the best basis. You know, if you put your kid in those gilded halls, oh my God. my bo- I mean, I remember once taking my kids we, you know, they went to Ataman Public School not in any way a disadvantaged school perfectly lovely little ordinary primary school does very well academically because it draws from a high socioeconomic area and yeah, that's I mean, what you we live, know. Yeah, I mean there is I mean, I'm sure there would be people who could make the argument. Oh, in the and same, they do. <laughs> that, that, like, you know, it's fine for you to it's send your kids you. to, you know, none public my, school in our time. None of my neighbours did. Yeah, uh, right. <laughs> and, <laughs> interestingly enough. And also, my nieces went to Winmalee High School. My nephew, my son's-in-law, one went to Mossman High, one went to Leichhardt High. My nephew um, went to Leichhardt High School. Um, my other nieces went to Canterbury Girls. So we have gone to a range in my family, yeah. but no one's gone to a private school, I'm incredibly proud to say. Um, and I believe strongly that the private schools do not offer more opportunities. Mm. I believe strongly that they do not offer a better education. I believe strongly that they are actually giving you a kind of branded version of something which is all about status and boasting rights rather than actual substance. I'm not saying they're bad schools. They're fine. But the $30,000 difference, people, just isn't there. It really isn't there. It's smoke yeah, and mirrors. You could just teach your kid to play lacrosse on the weekend. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to, if lacrosse is such a big thing for you. But – but we I, also okay, know we, we just, have yeah, okay, we have evidence, for example, that yep. kids from public co-ed comprehensive schools do better at university than private and selective school kids. Is that right? Yes. Once they get in. Once they get in. Now, obviously, less a lower percentage of public school kids get into uh, university because they can't select their right. students. So that makes sense. But once they're in, by the end of their first year, they're generally outperforming both by an average of five marks. Now, people because ask Because you've why. had to work hard. Partly. People often ask me why. I do have a joke as to the reason why, but okay, it's not good. entirely a joke. Okay. It's one of those jokes which may be true, which is I'm sure it's much easier to go from one underfunded public institution to another <laughs> underfunded public institution. Right. How must those kids feel who come out of those schools, yeah. which pretty soon they're going to have to be painting with gold leaf because I don't know what they're going to do with the money they're raking in without that. Heat the pool. Yeah, well, the, the four pools. Yeah. Um, 
what they are going. No, I mean they- I meant the one for the ponies. They're <laughs> literally playing water polo <laughs> on right, ponies. Young ponies. That's, <laughs> that's right. what they're doing yeah, now. That's right. I think they're heating the harbour outside <laughs> yeah, that yeah. school near my place. That's <laughs> right. So that the girls never even get a whiff of a cool breeze. Yeah, exactly. uh, <laughs> <laughs> honestly. No, how must they feel when they go into their their average university right. lecture theatre? It must be a shock like nothing else. Why are we doing this to our kids? Why are we? And and the message these kids get is that they're both very very important and special, but very very fragile. Right. Because they can't mix with ordinary children because right. they might go to the bad. I mean, for goodness sake. Don't you have any faith in yourself as a parent that your children can't meet some, you know, not very nice other kid and resist? I, 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 I find the whole thing totally illogical and so self-defeating. Honestly, if you line my girls up next to all the kids that they grew up with who went off to very expensive schools when they went to um, a nearby um, public high school that I was told I was neglecting them by sending them there, I was told that I was sacrificing my children to my principals. Right. Can you believe it? I can ima- but I can imagine people saying that. I can hear people saying that. They were, uh, you know, Lampers, you line them up now, I promise you, you couldn't tell the difference. Yeah. You could not tell the difference. There's more to an education too than purely marks, right? Marks, mm. like life experience. The thing that's interesting to me is, like you said, co-educational, right? They yeah. went to co-educational schools. Are all public schools co-educational? No, not in New South Wales. Okay, so um, I went to a co-educational school, but it was a country private school. I was on a scholarship to a country private school and mm. uh, went to uh, public uh, school. And my uh, brother and sister, uh, but yeah. Anyway, mm. so uh, I. Uh, but ours was co-educational, mm. whereas the local Catholic school was, you know, boys and girls, different, mm. split up. Yeah. And I always, when I would talk to the Catholic boys or even de- indeed the Catholic girls, the ideas that they had about the opposite sex were insane. <laughs> like, how do you feel about the idea of, like, uh, co-educational schools? Because the other argument that gets made is that girl- – because girls can do better academically if you take boys out of the classroom, right? Mm. That's Am I right in saying that? That's right. Right. So how do you feel about where, – where do you come down on that? Is it better that girls are on their own so they can excel no. or is it better that they're mixed in together? It's better they learn what they're going to have to face out there in the working world early rather than right. late. Again, the shock that some of these highly protected young women must face – when they walk out of these girls' schools that are very rah-rah, you can be chairman of the board, you can take over the world, and then they go out into a university which is co-ed, and then they go out in the workplace, it must knock them for six. Um, whereas if you – I'm absolutely convinced that I, you know, made it really in creative departments in advertising starting out in 1980 – because right. I'd been to a co-ed public school and I knew the kind of shit that I was going to have to put up with. I'd already honed the way I dealt with the boys in the playground. You know, I, it didn't strike me as, oh, my God, this is the world I know nothing of at all. The world is co-ed. And also, how can you have an education system where you have all the girls in single-sex schools and all the boys in co-ed schools? It's a real problem with that. Um <laughs> Just, you know, kind of logistically. I mean, technically, sure. But I assumed it would be something where we split the posh girls into the oh, rich yes, the schools. Special. And, and we then do. we just had all and the riffraff into the... Yeah, and we exactly. sacrifice the, yeah, the other girls. girls. Yeah. yeah, I sacrifice yeah. my girls. But I strongly believe that you have to deal with the way the world is. Yeah. Um, and also, by and large, girls do better at school than boys, co-educational or single sex. Right. And if you don't judge it as... If you're idea of an education is not my kid coming top. Yeah. Then what does it matter that they might get a few marks less by being in a co-ed school 
It's marks. They're not draining their brains out of their ears. And the girls are actually learning other skills right. which are going to be of much greater value to them when they go out into the real world and have to deal with what is basically still a misogynistic world workplace. Yeah, when they're dealing with the real world, whether it be like relationships between men and women or workplace relationships between men and women, it's probably going to come in a lot more handy than algebra did. Yeah, <laughs> you know, like, just generally. Yeah, yeah, in general. Yeah, in like, general, you know, yeah. it's much more of a useful life skill. Yeah, exactly. than. <laughs> What's the most important thing in life? What gets you further in life than anything else is social skills. Right. And if you haven't learnt social skills with the opposite sex, by the time you're 18, you are always going to be struggling. So ideally, if you had a, like a magic wand and you could, you know, rejig the Australian education system into what would be the perfect system for us to work, how does that look? Yeah, look. There will never be anything like a perfect system. But the way I would do it is I would have a um, really incredibly well-resourced gold standard public education system right across the country that got all the public funding, which accepted every single student and which put student well-being at the centre of its philosophy rather than academic achievement, uh-huh, yeah. like Finland does. Oh, yeah, I and love that. that it, I mean, to me, that's very important. Yeah. Like the idea that things are measured on, like, you know, what you do for the individual, like, and their journey rather than, you know, some sort of overall idea the, that everybody is competing in the same yeah. race, which is just... Nonsense. I mean, the idea of the school wasn't originally meant to be that it was a competition it's to find the best. It's not a competition. Best. It was meant to be to educate us to be citizens in the world, right? And to exercise our right to vote. Right. Um, and do it in an educated fashion. We need to educate our masters, said Lord Palmerston when they gave, for the first time, one man. But we also need to educate – I mean, well, that's right, our masters. Our yes, masters. being everybody, yes. yes. And we all benefit from the world – being smarter. Absolutely. Like when we have these debates about climate change or when we, you know, you look at people not vaccinating their children or stuff, you find, well, actually the vaccinating the children one's an interesting one because sometimes it's the most educated areas that have gone that way. But, gone a bit wacko. But there is like a value in education, particularly in this world where we have so much access to information. We all yeah. carry around a computer in our pocket more powerful than the first rocket that went into space. We need capacity to understand all the information and we've been given. All of us need it. There is a Everyone. really... In, in really really interesting example of what happens when you methodically run down your general education system. The results of voting in England and Scotland for Brexit. England has a very poor education system regarded so worldwide. Scotland has an excellent education system regarded so worldwide. Scotland voted to stay. England voted to leave. Now, whether their education systems had any effect on that, I don't know. But it's an interesting, it's an interesting thing to think about. My uh, the most interesting thing that came out of Brexit for me was that idea that the only place in uh, England that had the there was a anyway. I'm going to get this wrong, mm. but there's one place that doesn't have a Murdoch newspaper, ah. and they because of a previous thing that had happened, and so they have no Murdoch newspaper, and they have the same demographics as places that voted. Uh, to stay, but they voted. Uh, sorry, they stayed, voted to stay, but everyone else voted to leave. leave. And it shows the power that the press has in those moments as well. Except, what's interesting in this Australian election mm. is that the Murdoch press was a hundred percent vote LNP, like right. vote, 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 and actually, they nearly lost this election. They were nearly one of the few first-term uh, governments turfed out, which starts to indicate to me that the mainstream press 
is having far less effect on what happens to elections, at least in Australia, than it once did. Well, I also think that that there's no pretense anymore. They jumped the shark a few years ago about being... Like, you know, there was a time where people thought, well, if the newspaper told you something, they've thought it through. and they. But now you're like, well, yeah, of course that's what they're going to (laughs) say. They're never going to say anything different to that. Hang on, Andrew Bolt's pro Tony Abbott? All right. Stop the press. (laughs) How strange. Okay, so you you restructure so that that all the funding goes to... uh, Public public schools. schools. All the public funding goes to public schools. I wouldn't get rid of... Private schools, private schools are fine. As long as they are fully paid for by the people. By the parents. You want to opt out of the gold standard system? You want to turn your back on your neighbours? Fine. But you pay for it. There is absolutely no way that a taxpayer who could never afford to go to one of these schools should be paying. Chip in for your privilege. Should be chip in for your privilege. That offends me and it offends me on a really visceral level. No, I agree with that. And so that's the way I'd like to see it go. We nearly had it. We nearly had it and tragically, tragically, it was Gough Whitlam that stuffed it up. So what happened? Tell me. He gave recurrent funding for the first time to private schools. Now, he did it to heal the split with the DLP, to uh-huh. get back the Catholic Labor voters. So it was a political deal. Of course. I don't think he ever thought it would end up where it's ended up. But it is that is where basically the whole game changed. And my view is now that people who support public education are going to have to fight for it forever in australia oh i agree i mean to be honest it feels like the the because it's one of the great ways you can still entrench privilege in our society now and there's people aren't going to give that up and it's also a very hard thing to say to people like people feel attacked the minute you go to it particularly because it's around their children Uh uh-huh it's it's this idea of i mean how do you feel about the idea of inheritance or the idea of because it's a very fascinating subject to me about how much of your life we had a thing within our family, and I won't go into the no. details, but where somebody was mad because my grandmother had spent had invested some of their inheritance money into my brother's farm to help mm. out with them growing Ooh. the farm. And I was so amazed by the idea that anyone would ever think that that they sort of owned it in advance right but even that they owned it at all in some ways like you know i i wonder if like we you know this idea of like you know constantly going well this is for my kids you know the idea that in the future the only people who will be able to buy afford a house are people whose parents buy them a house that's right look i I am in favor of inheritance taxes right I actually think there is absolutely no reason why someone who is lucky and gets left, left money, who's a member of the Lucky Bloody Sperm right. Club, that, yeah. sh- shouldn't have to pay tax when they inherit. It is ridiculous to me that I mean, we don't it, have any yeah. inheritance taxes. Right. I'm not against necessarily any inheritance at all. No. But regarded as a lottery, you didn't do anything to earn it. Your parents did. Now – they are entitled to leave it to you or to a right. cat's home if they want to. It's or their money. Or to spend it all in the week up Correct. to their death. That's like, their I mean, money. it's their choice it's to do their with money. what they want. Exactly. Yeah. But if they do decide they want to leave it to you, yeah. then the government says that's fine, yeah. but you have to pay tax on it. Fair enough. I see no problem. I don't – I think that privilege is almost always inherited in some way, even if it's just you've got a, a mother with a university education, you right. know, 
We know that the greatest predictor of educational success is mother's education level. So if the mother is highly educated, children are likely to do well at okay. school, no matter which school they go to. Right. Sorry to tell you that if you're spending a lot of money on your kid's education. Oh, man, uh, it's, it's the same reason that uh, AFL, there's a lot of father-sons in the AFL and people always talk about it being genetics. And I'm like, no, it's because from when they were young, they were coached by something who, someone who knew what they were doing. Correct. And in the same way as if you're – you know, mother who's probably doing the predominant amount of like, you know, helping with the homework, homework. and doing those sort and of things. And it's just confident walking into the school grounds. Right. You know, if it doesn't feel inferior or apologetic or angry or defensive, then it's, you know, it's going right. to work out better for you. Yep. That's just the way parents pass of on course. privilege. They do. But the education system shouldn't compound those inequalities. No. It should do what it can to contract those differences. It shouldn't necessarily take privilege away. That's not a good idea, but they don't have to add to it. What it needs to do is say to the kids who are born behind the eight ball, I mean, what I do in the education system as well is, first of all, we know who the kids are who are at risk of having a lifetime of, you know, the, all the social problems you can point right. a stick at. We know who they are before they're born because we know who their mothers are. Right. We could invest money in looking after those women the minute they become pregnant, in upskilling them, teaching them how to parent, helping with their illiteracy so that they are more skilled by the time the baby is born. It would be such a great investment because every subsequent child that woman has would benefit from that original investment. We should have wonderful childcare and preschool and mother and baby clinics for the very, very poor. And we should have the best public schools and public school teachers for the very, very poor. It is entirely the wrong way round to have the very, very best for the very, very rich. That is dumb. It's a misuse of resource. It costs us all in the long run. It is so much cheaper to do it the other way around because we end up with that investment saving Literally billions, probably trillions of dollars throughout those kids' lives in terms of welfare, in terms of imprisonment, in terms of health, in terms of so many – and generational – unemployment, poverty, chaos, drug addiction, the whole kit and caboodle we can start working on prenatally. Will we? No. Could we? Yes. I visited uh, recently in Perth, the biggest uh, prison in Australia. I went out. They're doing a – stand-up comedy uh, course for some of the prisoners to kind of, you know, because the biggest problem they face is they don't want they don't want people to reoffend. No. So part of it is about giving them the confidence to go back into the world. So one of the things they were doing is like an improv comedy, stand-up comedy thing, and they asked me if I would go out mm. and uh, have a visit. And I went with my friend Jared McKenna, who people might have heard on this podcast before, who is uh, a Christian, a big yeah. believer in Jesus, and we had a great conversation about that on the podcast. And I like Jared a lot, and we went out there and uh, – yeah, I did some stuff with the prisoners and stuff. But the most interesting thing, none of the prisoners who were involved in this were Indigenous because no. they won't, they, the idea of shame yeah. in their culture. To, so to do something where you're mucking around in front of other people like that isn't – almost 30% of that prison is Indigenous mm. and I think 3% of the population in Western Australia is know, Indigenous. So without the myriad of other, you know, social and environmental responsibility, uh, yeah, sorry, social uh, re- responsibilities that we have to these people, our original people, mm. um, just on a pure economic basis, the idea that, if, like you said, if you can get it early and change people's lives from the start, yeah, the ongoing cost later on of this is, it's going to pay for itself. It pays for itself, but we won't do it. Because? 
we it won't. doesn't pay for itself soon enough and we don't see the results? Is that is it the short-termism of... Partly that. But I actually think tragically it's because of who we've got in charge. Mm. And because we've basically got privileged people in charge, yeah. people who've lived pretty nice lives and who have never mixed with, even met half the time until they're actually politicians and they're going around sure. and wanting their vote. But they didn't grow up beside them. They didn't sit in school beside them. They didn't play football with them. They didn't go on dates with them. They didn't hang out with them at the park with them. They don't know these people. And so there is this real tendency to blame them. Right. To say, well, you know, anyone can get ahead in this country if they just try hard enough. Well, actually, no. We know that the people who don't get ahead have really similar yeah. kind of trajectories. I mean, sometimes they're right, these people, in that they're, what they're saying is everyone that I've ever met yeah. is in a position to do whatever they want. Yeah. As far as, like, everyone I went to school with and all my friends. They're can, doing fine. But also that they have been given that opportunity. And in some ways, if they don't take advantage of it, you could point to them and go, you know what? You, you were given everything and you didn't take and advantage of it. And you it up against a wall. Right? But this idea, it always comes, I always call it the two cups of coffee mm-hmm. thing, which is every time like they talk about the Medicare, you know, fee or any of those things, it's always like, well, it's just two cups of coffee. Guess what two cups of coffee is to Joe Hockey? Nothing. Because firstly, he's not paying for his own coffee. Yeah. But even if he was, it, who cares? He's having 10 a week or whatever. Mm. It, like two, he could give up two a minute. But if two cups of coffee is your luxury for your entire week... Mm. That's then right. it's a little harder to give up two cups of coffee or a packet of cigarettes or, you know, a bottle of wine or whatever it is that, you know what, one bottle of wine a week because you, you know, even when I was unemployed, you know, the idea that people go, oh, well, unemployed people, a lot of them just sit around, you know, uh, at home, like watching television. I was like, have you ever been unemployed? Yeah. You have no money. <laughs> what you, else are you going to do? What are you going to do? The minute you leave the house, you're in debt when you're unemployed. <laughs> I mean, and also this idea that if you're unemployed, you should have no fun. There should be no joy. It is a punishment. You need to suffer. Why? Sometimes people are unemployed for all sorts of good and valid reasons and making them miserable and making them depressed and making them demoralised does not help them get a job. It has the opposite effect. This desire, this uh, something about a lot of Australians who want to squeeze the very last shekel out of the poor. Right but don't want to take a single dollar from, from people I've got. I do not understand it. It makes no sense. Nah, I can't, but, I mean, again, it becomes, I mean, it's, a, it's the great trick of, I mean, if you want to talk purely financially, yeah. the ATO's number one tax avoider on their list is uh, News Limited, yeah. or News Corp, yeah. you know, the yeah. bigger News Corp. Like, you know, we're talking about you know, millions and millions of dollars. And they love dollars. talking about doll bludgers. Right, doll bludgers. <laughs> I mean, they're the bludgers. They're the welfare chiefs, oh, no. right? But you have this major media organisation who's – I mean, the best way to distract people is just find someone under you and go, no, 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 it's not It's not Rupert Murdoch's fault you've got nothing. It's that refugee who's it's coming to take you nothing. Muslims. Yeah. They're Mus- the problem. Muslims. We get rid of them and, 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 and everything would be fine. I mean, this lack – of understanding of the way things work is partly a problem of the education system as well, but it is also the popular media and it is Murdoch and it is the constant drip, drip, drip of you've got to be responsible for yourself. Well, yes, most people can be. Right. Some people can't and all of us, if we're honest, have had moments in our lives where we couldn't, where we needed help, where we needed support, where we needed somebody to come in and stand up for us and hold us up while we got better. So why can't we be generous about that? We've been there, every but single one of us, even bloody Malcolm Turnbull. It's that election idea night he was of there. the safety net. 
you know, like the safety net is meant to be a safety net. Yes. You know, it's there for when you fall. Oh. We decided that we don't want people to fall too far, right? Yeah. But suddenly we all Bounce think back. that we should have the net in our backyard even yeah. when we don't need it. I'm going to use it for volleyball in the meantime. Give me a net as well. I don't need it for safety, but I'm going to use a volleyball net. A friend of mine says about this entitlement culture, she says, you know, pretty soon someone's going to say, your grandmother's got a wheelchair. Yeah. Well, my grandmother should have a wheelchair, wheelchair, but your grandmother can walk. That yeah, doesn't, matter. doesn't matter. She should, should have a wheelchair. It's crazy thinking, and it infu- it infuriates me to a point where I actually can't argue, I can't I can't argue with it. Become incoherent because it's such a different view of the world than mine that I can't even get anywhere near the beginnings of having a discussion about it. I I, I mean it. It drives me crazy. It was the one that I couldn't understand during the, you know, during the debate about the, you know, the charging six dollars for people to, you know, go to the doctor or whatever it was, seven dollars or whatever yeah. they were going to charge. I was like, you know, I'm like, I mean, we we are both rich people. I yes. mean, by the standards Absolutely. of, you know, by the no standards of, of, you know, and to even say, I, I'd never want to be one of those people that, you know, rings Neil Mitchell or whatever and goes, well, you know, for two people with kids, $200,000 a year isn't that much. <laughs> like, I can understand how in your life and the way you live it, you, it probably isn't. But to the real world and to most people, it, it is. is. It's, it's so much, right? Well, Duncan Storer, I thought, you remember the guy on Q&A uh-huh. who yeah, said of course. the tax cut for you, yeah. but for me it, uh, it means a bit of extra money, you know, so I can take my girls to the – which I thought was a lovely way of putting it. I can take my girls to the cinema on the weekend. Right. Um, and his question was really valid. It was a really good one. It was saying to those privileged people on that panel, here's a window into what – my this, world. What this actually means. What this I'm not a like. statistic. I'm yeah. a person. I'm a person. And yes, I've made mistakes. Yes, I'm. And he said, yeah. I haven't always been lived a perfect life. So he, he outed himself in that way. And then what happened to him? And it was the Murdoch press that right. went out after him. And there were some journalists involved who I will not name who wrote stories and investigated him who I know. And I thought to myself, how could you do this to this man? He exercised his democratic right to ask a question. Because it was a particularly good question, he now has his whole life held up for judgment by the general Australian population. Talk about a good way to say to anyone in that situation, shh, don't you speak up, shh, don't you stand up. Well, that's the Adam Goods thing. Mm-hmm. Adam Goods, like that's what we were all saying, yeah. was we like Indigenous people. When they're quiet. When they're quiet. And well behaved. Yeah, when you're our Indigenous mm-hmm. people. Mm-hmm. But shh, mm. it's, boo. It's like the hatred of feminists. Right. It's because feminists speak out about what it is to be a woman. We love women. We just hate those feminists. They're horrible because they speak out. And Duncan Storer spoke out about the reality of poverty in Australia. It was crazy the way that that, that is just – it was one of the most inappropriate things. He's not a public figure. He was no. a guy who asked a question. By the way, it, would, it was a valid question regardless of whether he they'd found out that he was secretly the worst person exactly. on the planet. It does, doesn't matter. does not actually matter. No. Still a valid question. <laughs> <laughs> that goes to the heart of this very issue. Okay, we we, we need to finish up soon because we could talk forever. Yeah, but I, could. but I, um, I, I, education I think is just one of those things that I want to talk to you just one little bit more, which is mm. that next step of education, which is university education. Now, how would how do you think the university education system in this country should operate? 
I don't claim to be as expert on university education mm. as I have be- become about school education. I do not necessarily have a problem with a reasonable HEX scheme. Mm. The reason being that I think generally if you go to university, you are a fairly privileged person, even if you didn't start out that way. Sure. And, and, and look, and it shows like that people with university educations are privileged once you get into the workplace. So correct. you are earning a privilege even if you weren't originally privileged. Correct. So I don't mind a hex scheme, but at the same time I think it shouldn't be 100,000 degrees. And, you know, we're asking young people to go out into a world where it's almost impossible for them to get a mortgage, where their wages are very, very low, um, unemployment is rampant, and then we're asking them to go out with a debt of $100,000 over their neck as well. That to me is ridiculous and it's not going to work. And it's it's Plus the people who are asking them bought their house for $20 and went to university for for free. free. So it's a little hard to hear that argument about how – you have to have a massive debt and also you're never going to be able to afford to own a house. It is an absurdity. We, as Australians, we can afford to subsidise degrees right. in the way we did when the first HEC scheme came in. For the sake of the country. For the sake of the country and for having an educated country and having uh-huh. people who know their task. One of the areas that worries me even more than university is TAFE and what is happening to right. technical education. Because TAFE in Australia used to operate in the same way that community college does in America, where we when people make mistakes or fall on their beam end or, you know, don't do the sensible thing when they're young, right. it's a second chance. Which, by the way, when did, most when, people. Why didn't – when did we have this idea that if you if you fuck things up when you're a teenager, you don't get That's a second it. chance? Doomed for I mean, life. We're living until we're like in our 80s. And like, come on, give them a couple of <laughs> go, gut do-overs. Yeah, yeah. Like, I mean. And TAFE operated like that. You right. could go and get your HSC. Then you could get a, a bridging course and go to university or you could do a trade and get yourself a qualification. And TAFE was terrific. You know, right. the, the qualifications that people got were really worth something. And we're just throwing that away and turning it into this pseudo market. I really worry about the the privatisation, not just private schools, which are not for profit, but the general privatisation for profit motive in the whole of the education environment. And the reason that's happening, I think, from my marketing background, is because we have saturated markets in so many areas now where all people are buying is replacement because we've right. got all the stuff we need, right? So there's no growth in the old kind of capitalist drivers. So now you're seeing large corporations move into areas that they used to leave to government to do, right. including law and order and justice and yep, jails, all prisons, jails and prisons, yep. but also education. So you've got the, the, the thing in America and in the UK now where large multinational companies uh, write the curriculum, yep. they print the textbooks, they set the tests, they mark the tests and they sell all this stuff right. to the schools themselves and the schools start to become little churn-out workers for the multinational machine. That's the last thing we want. Education at its essence is meant to train people to question right. and to think for themselves. This privatisation of education, this pay your money, get your, get your qualification, your diploma, your HSC, whatever it is, is the opposite of that. And it doesn't have at its heart the education of young people. It has at its heart the return on investment for shareholders. Wrong intent. I come back to what's the intent and that makes what happens happen. And if the intent's wrong, the outcome can only be wrong. I uh, 
love that as a thought. And I think that uh, you're absolutely right about that higher education thing. I mean, firstly, for the opportunity to have a do-over, which yeah. let's be honest, in this day and age now, it's yeah, the whole idea that you'll have a job for life or that you'll need the same qualifications for the rest of your life is ridiculous. Yeah. The second thing is, of course, we need people to think. But the third thing is, I, I like that idea of the hex thing. I've always so thought, I've always thought that I have no po- problem contributing to part of my education. Mm. But I, do, I think I would love, and this is what I was going to say about the Medicare mm. levy before, when in relation to the visit to the doctor, I would just prefer that they set the rate of payback higher. And, you know, so, I mean, it takes you until you earn $60,000 a year or 70000 and then it's a percentage out of a small percentage that you won't notice hmm. once you earn $70,000 or $80,000 or whatever. Or they have a levy, which is graded according to your income. What you earn. And I mean, that was fine. the thing with Medicare. I was like, just put the Medicare levy up. Yeah. There's already a levy. Yeah, it's, just, a, it's a percentage at a certain point that, like, I'm not going to notice. If you no. put it up an extra percentage, come tax time, I'll have to pay that percentage. But it won't be like, I can't take my kids to the cinema. No, or I can't afford. I mean, it was really interesting when we were talking about the two cups of coffee. I remember a friend of mine when she had two small children, they were living off her husband's single teacher's wage. And she, if we went shopping and I said, let's have a coffee, she, used to, she had to think about it. She right. had to say, I actually can't afford a coffee this week. Well, you know, that is awful. Right. And he was not uh, unemployed or digging roads. In fact, he probably would have earned more money if he was digging roads. He was a teacher. Right. And he had two kids and a wife to support and she couldn't afford to buy a cappuccino when she wanted one. Well, that's wrong. How do we attract better teachers? This is always the issue. Do you, A, subscribe to the idea that the quality of teaching isn't no. as good as it used to be? And no. B, if you do or even if you don't, how do we you know, attract to well, teaching the best people? It's very easy uh, to attract. Uh, I don't know what the best people are, but... No, I mean, whatever me neither. I mean, whatever that means. Whatever but that is. We, we've all had it's very easy. We've all had experience of great teachers and yeah. terrible teachers at school. And you, you know? will always yes. have both. Of course. And That's for different sh- people, they're going to, uh, yeah, one person's great teacher will be another person's terrible, terrible teacher. teacher. And one and a great teacher one year goes through a divorce the next year and isn't right. so great. Yeah. What I do mean, we do? Fire we forget that about teachers. Yeah. We, we do forget that about teachers, yeah. though, human that they're beings. people. They're human beings. But no, the point is, it's easy if you want to attract top uh, academic achievers, if that's what we mean by the best people, to any profession. Uh, it's an con- entirely competitive world in which we right, live. Money. Money. You want to pay them really well, yeah. you'll get the best people. Sure. As long as you're paying uh, corporate bankers more than teachers, well, that's yeah. where the, the top academic achievers will end up. Sure. So um, you, there is no magic way to attract people to a low-paying, low-status, low-respect profession except the one that does, which is they feel they're doing something important and a lot of people feel they have a vocation for teaching and that's a great thing. I fundamentally disagree in the idea of we need to improve the quality of teachers. I think that that is so destructive in terms of the teachers we have now. What it does is it sends a message to them that they're not good enough and it undermines their morale. And if you want to destroy... Um, the ability of teachers to teach properly, the best thing you could do is undermine them, their morale. And we've seen governments and politicians do that for 30 years, and it's worked. It's worked really well. Teachers' morale is very, very low. 50% of the profession have left within the first five years, never to return. That's the thing, that the stat that I keep reading. So how 
how do you think that a yeah they keep those people and b how in a broader context do we raise the morale and raise the respect of teachers because i think that's if we can't find the money no. right so that you take that out that yeah. obviously the first we're way you can do it is just we're going to pay them like corporate lawyers yeah we yeah. pay them we pay them like doctors and they'll yeah. be more good teachers yeah. okay well we're not going to be able we're to do that we're not going to do that so the second thing's got to be to respect teachers more and like honor the idea of teachers more as a society and thus you know if if teachers are respected in the same way as I don't know, firefighters are respected or nurses Doctors. even properly to a certain extent. Well, they have like, five-year degrees. Right. I mean, I think the thing that there is – it's really simple. It's not rocket science. It's what you do in any profession. First of all, you give them decent, um, decent environment in which to work. Yeah. So many public schools in particular are literally falling down around people's ears. Staff rooms are packed cheek by jowl with teachers. Right. This is not helpful. It's hard and, enough. Don't make it harder. Exactly. And it sends a message <laughs> – you're, you're, you're not valuable. We don't right. value you. So that's one way. You give them a decent environment in which to work. First, and the second thing you do is you increase the amount of time they spend in their job doing the stuff that they like that uh-huh. attracted them to teaching in the first place, yep. generally in the classroom, and you decrease the amount of stuff that they hate and that takes up a lot of their time and burns them out. Accounting for what they do in the classroom, right. which is ramping up consistently, you take that down and increase that. That You'll hold... Half the teachers you lose just by doing that. The third thing is, yes, you give them professional respect. You stop everyone saying, oh, well, teachers are just childminders. Or I could do that. Oh, really? Go stand in front of a group of tired 15-year-olds on a Friday afternoon and try to teach them about Shakespeare. Go on. Off you go. Good luck with it. It's a hell of a tough job. And what we need... And increasingly so, I would have thought, with the way that, like, the the breakdown of like that you know and look and by the way uh, I was not the most mm. traditionally respectful student either like you know and I can't imagine Jane that you were necessarily yeah. <laughs> I would be a little naughty right I was known to talk but I think in this day and age that's gone to a new level I mean with technology but also with like would it or not don't well you think? that's the myth I mean my, seemed, my daughter yeah. was well, a teacher tell me that my daughter is a teacher she's on maternity yeah. leave at the moment and she taught in a um, co-ed public comprehensive high school out in the far western Emu Plains in wow. Sydney, right? So not a posh school by any stretch of the imagination. She said the kids were never the problem. Kids okay. are fine. She loves adolescents. She had no problem with the discipline. What was the problem? Parents. Yeah, right. But she said actually But why? What's their what's the problem with well, parents? She said out in the western suburbs actually the parents are pretty good. They're, yeah. they're they're pretty nice, they're pretty reasonable, their expectations are sane. Yeah. But the closer you get in to the aspirational Parents have gone lunatic bananas. I mean, they are at the school with their clipboard interrogating teachers at the drop of a hat. Right. And, I mean, we now have a situation in with principals, because my sister is a principal, where a lot of – almost every principal has been threatened with violence by a parent. So it's a it, – it, schools are like every other part of society. As people become more anxious, more disaffected – more exhausted, more angry, more feeling like they're under attack, the more they behave badly in any area that they come into contact with. And because governments have said to the public over and over again, you go up the school and tell the teacher what you think. Teachers are your servants, you employ... That's what they've given them permission to go and behave in a way that A, is not good for their children to see and B, is a disaster for the school itself. So we've now got situations where, you know, female principals, for example, often won't talk to parents without a male teacher 
being present because they're literally physically afraid of them. Wow. And this just isn't in poor areas. This is right across the board. So that is endemic of a lack of respect for teachers' professionalism and for their authority. It's very fascinating, Jane. I'm very fa- – this has been great. I Again, we'll have to do another one another time and I'd get to, to all the other things that I was going to talk about. But uh, uh, just before we go, we've kind of ca- covered this one off, but I always like to ask people regardless. So you've said that you don't believe in God. Um, what – do you just think when you die, uh, you're dead? And uh, the question that comes with that is, does that affect the way that you live your life? Yeah, I think it's a really good question. And yes, my belief is that what happens after life is pretty much the same as what happened before life. Uh Because we were not around for like millions of years. Do I mind that I wasn't around for all that time? No. No. Um, So assume that I will go back to... Not being around. Not being around, you know, (laughs) just like I was for most of recorded history. Remember when I was not around? Yeah. I'm going to go back to that. I'm going to go back to that. And I don't remember it being particularly awful, so I assume it'll be the same. Seemed to do fine without me. It'll probably go on fine without (laughs) me afterwards. afterwards. Exactly. I do think sometimes this idea you have to have eternal life is slightly narcissistic, Uh, but hey. Slightly? Yeah, just a little bit narcissistic, (laughs) but hey. Um, So... I'm really happy with that. I'm content with it. But how it affects how I live my life is it gives me a sense of urgency, particularly as I get older, a sense that I only have this much time. So I want to make the most of it. I want to do the things that I've got an opportunity to do. And I also, you know, everybody says this, but I also would like when I do, you know, no longer exist, feel at that moment as I, you know, breathe my last, that somewhere inside the last little bit of consciousness I have, I think to myself, well, I did the best I could and I did okay. Yeah. And I made, I made the people around me feel a little bit better about themselves rather than a little bit worse. And that to me sounds like a perfectly fine thing to have achieved. And that's I, all I, want. I think that's a perfect way to end the podcast. Thank you so much for your time. Now, let people know, yeah. uh, you know, where they can buy it, what your book, late, latest book is. Uh, do, let's do the plugs. Do the ad. Let, do essentially the ad. what I'm saying, Jane, okay, is let's yeah. do the plugs. Uh, my memoir, Plain Speaking Jane, is in uh, shops and available, uh, you know, Online in all the usual places. If, if you work out how to listen to a podcast, you know how to order a book. Yeah, you know how to order a book. And it's called Plain Speaking but Jane and it's published by Pam McMillan, if that helps. Okay. Um, and I've got articles coming out. Uh, all the time in daily life and Sunday life Um, so it's lovely when people read those and oh I've got a television program which will be going to air in October for ABC Compass Can you tell us what it is about or is it a secret at the moment? No, no, I think I can tell you what it's about because we advertised online to get the cast on air We can do that So I reckon it's not a secret Um, It's about fathers and daughters and mothers and sons and that relationship because we almost never talk about it Wow, I'm really interested in that. It's been an absolute pleasure, Jane. Thank you so much for being part of this. If you like the podcast, guys, here's what you do. You rate it on the internet on the places that you found it because that's how other people find it. It's pretty simple. If you enjoyed this, that's all you have to do. Uh, We'll talk to you again soon. Cheers.
Stay forever.